Welcome to a year in the life of a seahorse. Over the course of this series, we'll be speaking with Karen, a Wisconsin woman who discovered she inherited the CDH1 gene mutation, which led her to make some life-changing decisions in regard to her health and body. Spending a little over a year with Karen between September 2020 and November 2021, we learned about this gene mutation, its impact on stomach and breast cancer, the lifestyle changes associated with it, and how the seahorse is the unofficial mascot for people who have had a total gastrectomy, as seahorses don't have stomachs themselves. In our third episode, Karen spoke with us in late May 2021 about her continued weight loss and nutrition challenges and her considerations on another major surgery related to her CDH1 gene mutation. All right. Hi, Karen. Welcome back. Uh, Thanks for being here again with us today uh, on our third episode here, uh, talking about your CDH1 gene mutation and total gastrectomy journey. For uh, for the audience, it's been seven months since uh, you, Karen, have uh, had your stomach surgery. Um, The last we spoke to you was three months out, so it's been four months since we last spoke. Uh, I'm sure a lot of a lot has changed uh, in that time. So if you want to give us uh, a little bit of an update, maybe starting with um, the the weight loss associated with your total gastrectomy. Uh, I'm about seven and a half months out post-op. I've probably lost somewhere between 65 and 70 pounds. Unfortunately, my scale recently broke, so which is probably a good thing. Um, but I'm almost getting to the lowest weight I told my uh, uh, surgical staff I wanted to get to, and the weight loss isn't slowing down. So I'm a little concerned um, just because I don't want to get too skinny, and I'm already starting to see like a lot more bones. And I, I've heard from others that sometimes when you lose so much weight, you lose it also in your butt area, and it hurts to sit. And I'm starting to feel that because I have no cushioning to help with that. So I'm trying to eat as best as I can. Um, My husband sees me sometimes struggle depending on the day. Uh, I've been working with my nutritionist uh, to try to look at other options. Um, Essentially, she's just recommended that I add additional calories into my diet somehow. I'm still trying to figure out how to do that uh, without feeling nauseous. Um, so I'm kind of working with her on the nausea portion right now. Um, but I'm hoping the weight loss will slow down soon because I don't think I have a lot more to lose at this point. And how has eating and nutrition changed for you uh, between right after you had your surgery to three months out when we last got an update from you to uh, right now when, again, um, you know, you're seven months out from your total gastrectomy? So currently with how my diet is. I usually have um, a bowl of Cheerios in the morning because it's got at least five grams of uh, protein in there. And then I add my milk, so I'm trying to get at least 10 grams of protein because protein is the huge uh, factor to trying to have a successful post-gastrectomy lifestyle. Um, usually a couple of hours later, I'll try to have some type of nuts, either it's cashews or peanuts, just to try to get some additional protein in. Uh, lunch, it depends. I really try to look at what kind of protein can I get in. So sometimes it might be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, uh, low sugar, uh, jelly, uh, cause I can't really do full sugar jelly at this point. 
Sometimes if I have leftovers, uh, a lot of times, especially because we're in Wisconsin, I'm doing a lot of fish fries lately just because I really want to get as much protein in as possible. So I usually have one to two meals that I bring home after leaving the restaurant. I'll usually try to have another snack around two or three o'clock and then usually dinner. I'll usually try to find something that's high protein, but typically at the end of the night at around eight o'clock, I usually end my day having um, a high protein yogurt just because it's a lot easier for me to take in that late at night compared to how things were at the beginning. You know, the beginning of this journey just seems like a whirlwind that I really can't, yeah, I really can't remember how my diet was at the beginning. I'm sure I have some documentation in relation to it, but I, I feel like I definitely didn't eat as much then. Um, I was still trying to definitely navigate which foods worked well at that time and didn't work well. And um, also just at the beginning knowing that I had lactose intolerance, uh, whey protein issues, which I'm still trying to figure out if I have. Because sometimes even when I do have protein shakes, it doesn't sit very well and I, I, I don't feel the greatest after them. So I know that's a huge form of protein a lot of individuals take in, but sometimes it's harder for me to take that, um, even if I try to make it into a smoothie. But um, otherwise, at least in my coffee, I also add collagen powder because there's a good amount of protein in that as well. So I'm very cognizant in relation to what I'm trying to get in, um, primarily from the protein standpoint. I'm still watching how many grams of sugar I take in, like added sugar. I usually try not to go anything over five, um, just because in the past I've had issues when it was over five. I'm slowly experimenting to see if I can do a little bit more and it's doing okay so far, but I'm still not wanting to trust uh, going past that because the dumping episodes that I've had, although they have diminished, I, I still get them occasionally. Um, they're not fun. They're definitely not fun. They wear me out and I, I just don't like feeling like my blood sugar is dropped so low that I can't function. So yeah, definitely trying to watch. I would rather be more cautious than not at this point since I'm still under a year out. So between snacking and then eating like a full meal, how do they compare to each other in terms of like the, the difficulty and the challenges of eating? Uh, typically with my daily intake of food, uh, breakfast isn't so bad. I actually don't feel so bad uh, when I do that. Uh, when I have my, if I can try to remember to have my mid-morning snack, um, I'll definitely do that. I, I get really busy with work <laughs> and sometimes I forget. Lunch, though, is probably the meal that I can have the most quantity in, and I don't know why my body seems to accept it more, because um, my worst meal of the day is probably dinner. I have a very hard time eating dinner. Um, I just, it, it doesn't want to go down very well. I get a little nauseous. Um, I still try to eat as much as I can, and um, even if that means that I have to slow down and really pace it over a longer period of time, I will definitely do that. But otherwise, compared to the beginning, I, I mean, I'm able to eat a little bit more um, every few weeks or so than I did previously. Um, but at the beginning, I definitely had a harder time, if I remember correctly, just like learning how to chew well, uh, what 
items might make me feel good or not good. Because at the beginning, I mean, I would I would have episodes where I would have to run to the bathroom and I was feeling like I had to throw up a lot. Usually never did anything, but now those episodes don't really happen. I've actually had only one, or I'm sorry, two episodes where I overate and I had to go to the bathroom because I thought I had to throw something up just to help make room because I feel like I overstuffed everything. But otherwise, it's definitely a lot better than it was. I, it's definitely nowhere near where I would like to be at this point, but I definitely feel a lot better compared to how I did at the beginning. If you don't mind, Karen, could you describe what some of your worst dumping episodes were like? The worst dumping episode was coming home after a work event, and I, I, I didn't watch how I ate and drank uh, while I was out with coworkers. I did have a very strong beer. <laughs> um, it was over 10%. So between not eating and drinking the way I should have, along with a 10% beer, I got home uh, just before my kids were going to bed, and my um, daughter wanted me to come and say goodnight with her. So I did my usual thing where I went to her room, I went to cuddle with her, but I did not feel good whatsoever, and I ended up going to the floor <laughs> and laid down there for a little while. Uh, I don't know how long I was there because my husband came and he tried to help me up. I almost could not walk on my own. Uh, and we were going to go downstairs so I can try to get something to eat and just relax. I could not make it past the landing of the stairs. So I literally laid or yeah, sat down on the landing of our stairs and I from what I remember, uh, quietly asked him to get me a piece of pizza that was in the fridge, um, just because that was the only thing I could think of offhand that was something I could eat. I'm not sure how long it took me to eat it, and I don't remember much at all about any of this uh, dumping episode. I just know that after I ate it, I rested my head up against the wall and I fell asleep. Uh, my husband ended up coming up and then helped me down the stairs, and then I went downstairs to the living room and passed out. I did check my blood sugar after we got downstairs, and I forgot where it was at. It might have only been 60. So within like the 10 to 15 minute time frame, my blood sugar was still super low, which makes me wonder like how low did my blood sugar actually get when this episode happened? Because it felt like, as I've told people, it felt like when you get blackout drunk, like you just don't remember anything. You can't walk, you can't do anything. Um, that's been my worst dumping episode. And that was probably about two months ago or a month and a half ago, somewhere in that time frame. But since then, I've been really trying to be cognizant about my dumping episodes. Uh, they might happen uh, once a week or so. And uh, I, I know even just this week, uh, it was at bedtime. I just got done brushing my teeth. I just lay down in bed. I didn't feel good. Um, and I ended up going downstairs, got myself some peanut butter just to try to get something. And my blood sugar was down to 52 when I tested it. And that was, and I, I thought I had enough food and protein just before, you know, going to bed too. So to see how low it got, it really surprised me. I, those episodes just really make me feel like pure garbage. And I know that I need to move and not stay in the living room and then go to bed. Um, so it, it's a weird feeling when those happen because I just don't want to do anything it and it makes me feel I don't know 
it's really hard to describe what dumping is like unless you experience it. I, I, I just know that I was getting sweaty again. Um, a lot of the times when I feel dumping episodes starting to hit, I just feel a little off. Um, so I'll just grab something quick to eat and usually I can kill that sensation within five to 10 minutes and that's not an issue. But when they actually hit and then I feel the lethargic, um, side effects of it and the sweats, uh, that's when I, I have a lot worse feelings about it. I see you recently got a tattoo of a seahorse holding a cross on your right forearm. Uh, tell us about that and how it relates to your CDH1 gene mutation and your total gastrectomy. Yeah, so I never thought I would ever get a seahorse tattoo. Yeah, so since they are the unofficial mascot of gastrectomy stomachless patients, the idea to actually get this specific design of like a seahorse holding the cross. So I, I think I had talked about how my faith really was like my, my cornerstone and my crux um, for getting through all of this. So to me, my symbolism of like a seahorse holding onto his, you know, I needed my faith to get me through this because I, I don't know what I would have done. But I actually came up with the concept of this tattoo when my daughter wanted me to draw a picture of a seahorse. And this was, oh man, I can't remember if it was before or if it was after my surgery that I drew it. But I drew a seahorse and then I had it holding a cross. And then I, I told my husband, I'm like, oh, you know what? This actually would not be a bad idea for a tattoo idea. Um, so actually we, the design of this is actually a mixture of multiple things. So I, I make wooden, um, seahorse pieces, uh, just out of plywood. And, uh, so it was partially a mixture of that design along with, um, our friend Jamie. Uh, she actually helped, uh, try to create, you know, draw a few, uh, designs of it along with our friend Jim, who actually did the tattooing. It was kind of a mixture of all those ideas. So I wanted periwinkle and teal and pink. Uh, it was primarily a teal design that we put in there, but I have the pink in there as well, just for the breast cancer side of the CDH mutation. But in my tattoo, I actually have my surgery date along with CDH1, just so I can um, remember why I have that. And just for, to be a supportive individual, my husband actually got a matching tattoo. So we have matching seahorse tattoos at this point. Now that you're seven months out from your stomach surgery and your immediate and your extended family has seen you go through this journey, what has the reaction been like, especially from those who possibly could have inherited the CDH1 gene mutation as well? Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the CDH journey, I kind of felt really like I was alone on this. But about three or so weeks ago, uh, one of my half-sisters um, reached out to me and let me know that our mutual sister, uh, Laura, she went out on her own to get tested because she was a little afraid of developing cancer. So she wanted to know, and she actually has tested positive for the CDH mutation. So uh, her and I have been talking. I've been trying to be a huge support for her because, you know, going through the CDH mutation journey is not easy uh, and not having a support system. I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have that. So I feel it's definitely a responsibility on me to try to help anybody that's family to get through this just because it, it you know, I spent 
at least 30 plus hours researching, learning, talking to others. And um, I want to use that knowledge to be able to help anybody that's going to go through this. And uh, Laura actually is going to be working with the University of Michigan. Uh, she's in the process of doing all of her preliminary testing and she's going to go through with the gastrectomy. She's eventually going to go through a uh, mastectomy, which actually for me personally, I'm also having a consult with my uh, a breast surgeon in about a week and a half um, to start the process for uh, the mastectomy side of this. But uh, also last year, I was reached out by my sister-in-law to let me know that a cousin of mine, I didn't know I had a cousin, Lindsay, she also tested positive for it. Um, she's my uncle Carl's daughter. Um, my uncle Carl actually had esophageal and uh, stomach cancer back in the nineties. So, and you know, for him to actually test positive made sense for her to test positive. Uh, she, I, uh, you know, I've been in touch with her. She just turned 28. So she's a little stressed out about it. She just wants to get through it. But because of how high of a risk there is with our family, I'm trying to be as supportive to these individuals I'm just starting to learn about because it, it's a, it's a hard journey to get through. And just to know that someone else has been through it, I think is also a, a help for these individuals as well. Most of my siblings, it, it's taken a while, <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy that they're, they're, they're trying to look into their health as terrible of a, a mutation as this is. I, I, I just feel also for the sake of their kids, um, as most of my siblings do have kids, I, I want the next generation to be more aware of it just because I'm hoping there's going to be more advances in terms of how things <laughs> can be taken care of. So maybe stomachs don't have to be fully taken out. But I, I just want to try to save as many people as possible with the idea of knowledge. You mentioned the idea of getting a mastectomy to address the breast cancer side of the CDH1 gene mutation. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? I know when I first got my uh, diagnosis of CDH1 and I of the mutation and I heard, you know, read about like, okay, so it's a big thing for stomach cancer and for breast cancer. Honestly... The first thing I thought was, I, I'm fine having a mastectomy. I'm perfectly fine with that. They're not functional anymore for what they, their purpose really is. I'm done breastfeeding the kids, done having kids. But now that my, yeah, the stomach stuff was definitely harder <laughs> to make the decision on. And, and I, the reason why I'm actually starting to look at the mastectomy idea now, I, initially I wanted to wait till I was 40. But with my last breast MRI I had in April, it actually came back uh, showing that I have a cyst in one of the sides, and it was considered a BIRADS-3. Normally, it's not too big of a concern, You just as long as you have follow-up, but psychologically, from a CDH1 mutation standpoint, I, I really don't care. I, I just want to get rid of any risk concern. Because the idea of having tests every six months, you know, I'm starting to see that it's very wearing and taxing. And then to always be stressed about, like, are these results going to be okay? Are they not going to be okay? That's definitely pushing me to speed things up a little bit. I also joined a CDH1 uh, mutation page just for those who have had mastectomies. And to see the stories of how many women have had, you know, their routine screenings, their mammograms, their breast MRIs, all negative. 
but they decided to have the mastectomy, it's surprising to see how many of them have come back with a lobular breast cancer diagnosis after, just because lobular breast cancer is a lot harder to find than ductal. So all of those items, along with this slightly abnormal possible cyst uh, MRI, and just knowing that my aunt was in her 40s, I'm not that far away from all that. Um, she was in her 40s when she first got diagnosed. And that's really uh, a hotbed I really don't want to mess with. So, yeah, so in about a week and a half, I'm meeting with a breast surgeon and start talking about what I would like to do. And, um, you know, I've already talked to my insurance. They said they would cover things. And um, I, I just really want to try to get that process started. I, 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 I'm hoping also with all the weight loss I've had, I'm going to hold on to some fat at least, just so that when I go through reconstruction, I can utilize um, some of that because I really don't want to do the idea of breast implants for reconstruction. So I'm starting to look in the options ahead of time um, before I meet with the physicians. And, um, you know, that's going to be the next step of this journey. Whether I have the surgery this year or next year, uh, that all depends on what their thoughts are in terms of first having the initial surgery and then second having the uh, reconstruction surgery because I want to utilize my uh, health benefits as best as possible. But um, it might be this year, might be early next year. So we'll see. But I'll be one year uh, gastrectomy <laughs> out in October. And uh, yeah, I just want the CDH1 mutation journey to be over. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, but I guess to play devil's advocate here, can your CDH1 journey ever really truly be over? I guess as a final question, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Overall, I, I really don't know if the CDH1 journey is going to be over between being an advocate for others. And then, you know, as more research comes around, are they going to see that this gene has more effect on other type of bodily cancers? Time's going to tell in terms of that. But either way, uh, it's tattooed on me that it is going to be part of my journey forever. And um, we'll see what the future holds for it. And it's just going to be a matter of time. And uh, no matter what, I'm definitely going to be proactive in terms of any developments that come along with it. I definitely have a different perspective on it overall since the beginning. Uh, <laughs> I know one of the last times you saw me, at, at least at the beginning of this journey before surgery, I was very cheery-eyed, and here I am all smiles, and I can kind of laugh about it here and there. I think that's that's the big thing, is just to get over that first initial hump of getting past surgery, and then move on with your life and start learning. Wow. Um, again, thank you so much, Karen, for being on the show, giving us your updates over these past few episodes, uh, just informing us of what your CDH1 journey is like. Um, and the next time we speak, you'll be one year out from your surgery, um, which is pretty amazing. And we would love to hear your updates and the progress you've made. And until then, please take care and thank you again for, for sharing your story. Thank you for listening to A Year in the Life of a Seahorse. Please check out the other episodes to get the full story of Karen's CDH1G mutation journey. If you have any concerns about a family history of stomach, breast, or any other kind of cancer, please consider getting genetic testing to empower yourself with knowledge and help inform you on any major life decisions you need to make for yourself. For more information on stomach cancer, please visit No Stomach for Cancer's website 
at nostomachforcancer.org. That's nostomachforcancer, all one word, dot org. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having.